Amen? Hey, listen, we have some really special guests with us this morning who are here from Europe, young adults who are ministering uh, for a week with Circle Urban down in Chicago, and I'm not sure where you are, but would you stand? I think you're in the service. Like, stand, stand, where? There they are. All right, glad you're here. God bless you guys. All right. Well, his legs were taking him as fast as he could move. And if you could have seen his face, you would have seen a look of great desperation. He was prepared to throw down his pride and his prestige in order to see love heal his 12-year-old daughter who the doctors had done everything they could, but now laid comatose, hovering somewhere between death and life. She was the song of his life. She was the joy of his heart. And love was their last hope. She was some distance away, and the doctors had told her after she had spent her very last shekel, that there was nothing that they could do to stop her ongoing problem. You see, she had been bleeding for 12 years. Her menstrual period would not end. And it wasn't life-threatening, but it made her weak and anemic. Even worse than that, it made her like a leper in her culture, in her religion at the time. It rendered her unclean. So she was ostracized from her family. And separated from her faith. And spent so many days for 12 years alone. And yet she was peculiar because she, she was convinced that if she could just touch love. Love could heal her and change her life. Well he got there first. And when he arrived he threw himself in desperation at the feet of love. His story and her story are found in the Gospel of Mark. So turn there in your Bibles, if you will, or use the chair Bible ahead of you. And come to Mark chapter 5 in our series that we started last weekend, When Love Comes to Town. Last weekend we talked about the fact that, that love, that's who I mean by Jesus, God is love, Right? That love indwells our hearts as his followers. And today we're looking at how to access his power and presence. We're talking about faith. Now watch what happens when he finally shows up in verse 22 of chapter 5. It says, Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. That took a lot of guts to do that. I mean, as a leader of the synagogue, he has responsibility for the synagogue, the articles, the services. It's a prestigious position. And in the crowd that day would certainly have been religious leaders who were very negative and critical toward love, toward Jesus. And to watch the leader of their synagogue falling flat on his face in front of the one whom they were so critical about 
would cause them to have a pretty bad opinion toward Jairus. But Jairus could care less about their opinions, even if they said they spoke for God. He was desperate. His daughter was dying. And he saw love as his last hope. And love did not hesitate. Love got right up and headed on a 911 call to the home of Jairus. It says in verse 24, Jesus went with him. And all the people followed, crowding around him. Now, I don't know if she had ever seen Jesus before or not. But she certainly had heard about him. And she was convinced and she believed that if she could just touch him, that's all it would take, just touch him, that she would be miraculously healed on the spot right now. So defying all the rules. She's not supposed to touch anybody. She manages to wiggle her way through the crowd, touching people along the way, and press her hand through and touch him. And as soon as she touched him, she felt it. She felt power enter into her body, and she knew without a shadow of doubt that she'd been healed. It says in the passage, verse 27, she had heard about Jesus So she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. I love this word. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand the passage. It doesn't mean that she just kind of brushed up against him as she was healed. The tense in the Greek is such that she grasped his garment and grasped what was probably known as the crespidon, which was a tassel that was attached to an outer garment by a blue thread. Those Jews who were devoted to the truth of God would wear this in accordance with Numbers chapter 15. And there was a tassel on each corner of that garment. And it just stood for the fact that they were devoted to the truth. Now, Jesus certainly would have worn that. For he was not only devoted to the truth, but he was the what? Truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when she reaches through, she grasps. Now, get this picture. Her faith grasps his truth And a supernatural voltage of power passed from Jesus into her body and she was made well. She knew it. And he knew it too. And on his 911 journey, he stopped and put it in park. And he asked a most ridiculous question. Look at verse 30. Jesus realized that once the healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask, Who touched me? Love ignored their sarcasm, and he kept looking through the crowd. She knew she'd been found out. So she turned around, and she came to love, and she fell on her knees at his feet. And it got very quiet. And everyone in the crowd wondered, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? I mean, this is an unclean woman who's done a no-no and has touched him. Will he rebuke her? 
Listen to what love says. Verse 34. Daughter. Been a long time since she'd heard that word. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Now Jesus chose his words carefully. And he said, daughter, for a reason. See, he's not only talking to her, but he's talking to everybody who is listening, watching. See, her uncleanness could not affect him because he was totally pure. More than that, she who had been ostracized from her faith, separated from her faith, she who had been separated from her family, he was now saying, daughter, he was saying, now I'm adopting you into my family. You're my daughter. And I want everybody within my voice range to understand, if she's my daughter, she's your daughter too. Oh, how restorative that was. How healing that was. And isn't it wonderful that when you and I come to love with our sin and our uncleanness and our brokenness and our shame and our guilt, and we confess it to him and we give it to him and we accept by faith his grace, his mercy and forgiveness, he looks right at us and he calls us daughter and he calls us son. He welcomes us into his family. Isn't that wonderful? That's the gospel. That's the good news. But the good news stopped real quick. Because as he was talking to her, some bad news arrived. Here's the bad news, verse 35. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Poor Jairus. I mean, this woman's been bleeding for 12 years. One more day won't hurt. Why did he have to stop when his 12-year-old daughter is moments from death? But before the weight of that news could crush a father's soul, love spoke up. Jairus, he said, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Jairus, don't be afraid. Have faith. See, up until this point, Jairus has been looking at Jesus as a last resort. But in essence, what Jesus is saying to him is, Hey, Jairus, I want you to be like the woman who was already convinced that all she had to do is touch me and she'd be healed. Now, I want you to be like her. I want you to believe. That I can raise your daughter to life again. And I just picture Jairus just kind of limping with his faith alongside of Jesus as they go to his house in that room. Let's see what happens. Verse 37. And Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Now, don't misunderstand that. Jesus does not believe in death. Remember when the brother of Mary and Lazarus, uh, I mean, Mary and Martha died, Lazarus? Jesus refused to talk to him as though dead. He talked to him about about him as being asleep. See, when when we die, the only thing that really dies, our bodies biologically stop. 
But our soul lives on. Now, we're either going to live on with God or we're going to live on separated from God in eternity called hell. So Jesus looks at this girl, and as far as he's concerned, she's just asleep. Her body is, is, is done, but her soul lives on. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl or can be translated little lamb, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Wouldn't you be too? Now, what do those two stories teach you and me about faith? What do they teach us about accessing, as followers of Jesus Christ, about accessing his supernatural presence and power in our lives? I think you can sum it up in this thought if you want to jot it down. It's simply this, that when the followers of Jesus, when you and I exercise genuine faith in his presence... We experience his power. Read it with me, will you please? When the followers of Jesus exercise genuine faith in his presence, they experience his power. Now just look at it, read it on your own for a moment. If you want to experience God's presence and power in your life, you tap into it by faith. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey says that when you read the Gospels, what you discover is that God prizes, what God prizes most is simple childlike faith, no matter how great or how small. That's what he prizes most. Simple, childlike faith, no matter how great or small. That's all it takes to access his presence and his power. Now, the opposite is true as well. Look what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom, the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. His sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended, refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. See how important faith is? And he was amazed. He was amazed at their unbelief. Say, Pastor, I love those stories that you're sharing with us of the gospel. And I believe that Jesus did all those things that you're talking about. And I'm so glad to hear this morning that God prizes faith, childlike faith, no matter how great or how small. But I'm struggling. 
Because in, in Mark chapter 4, they were afraid. And they didn't even really have any faith, and he calmed the storm. He heals the woman. He raises the child from death to life. He cures the leper. He exorcises demons out of people's life. But here I am, and my faith isn't great. My faith, I would say, is small, but I do believe in God. And I've been asking him to change my circumstances, to turn my situation around, and he doesn't respond. And so I think that that either he doesn't indwell me, because I'm not accessing any power to change my circumstances, or maybe he's just not there. Good news. This morning, if you've ever felt that way or thought that way, you are not alone. We have all felt that. We've all thought that. So let's talk a little bit about our feelings and our thoughts. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the opposite of faith? You might say, well, I think the opposite of faith is doubt. But doubt is only a symptom of something much deeper. You see, the opposite of faith is fear. And it is fear which cancels faith and gives birth to your doubts. The next time you are struggling with doubt, ask yourself, what am I afraid of? The next time you're talking to somebody and they're sharing with you, they have all kinds of doubts in their minds. Help them explore what they're afraid of. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, verse 40, remember in the boat when it was being rocked around? We looked at it last weekend. If you weren't here, get a CD. Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And even today, Jairus, remember what Jesus says to him in verse 36? Don't be afraid, just have what? That's right, just have faith. Just have faith. I love it when kids listen. It's the highest compliment I can receive. Just have faith. But fear fights faith. Fear gives birth to our doubts. I mean, think about it this way. You find out you have a terrible disease. That you're going to die. You're afraid to die. So you call out to God and say, God, spare my life. And your disease doesn't get better. It gets worse. So you begin to doubt because God's not answering your prayer. You begin to doubt his goodness, his grace, and his power. You lose your job for no fault of your own. You cry out to God and you ask God to provide for you, but there's no job yet. You begin to doubt God's grace, God's goodness, God's power and provision. Someone you loved is dying. You depend on them so much. You fear loneliness. If something happens to them, you cry out to God to spare their life and they die instead. And you question his goodness, his grace. You question his power. How do we, how do we deal with our fears so they don't interfa- in, interfere with our faith and our ability to access the supernatural power of God in us? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, we have the answer. It's very, very clear. It says in that passage that perfect love casts out fear. Say it with me. Perfect love casts out fear. One more time. Perfect love casts out fear. When I know that God loves me, 
in spite of my circumstances, and I learn to rest, to stand in his hands of love, and his hand of strength, and his hand of power, I access his presence. I access his power. Listen carefully. Philip Yancey, in his book, he talks about reaching for the invisible God also reminds us that fearfulness is not dealt with by a change in our circumstances. Fearfulness is dealt with by immersing ourselves, grounding ourselves further in the love of God. Now listen to that carefully because in a material culture, in the Western culture, the way we want to deal with fear is we want our our circumstances to be changed. That's not biblical. The way you deal with fear is to ground yourself further in the security, the power, and the strength of God's love. And it's when I begin to do that that I tap into his presence and his power. Listen to me. God is not a genie. Jesus is not a genie in the lamp that we rub with our prayers in order to get him to make our lives easier and better, to turn our circumstances to favor us. Too many of us live with the attitude that I will trust God if he does all these things for me, if he heals me, if he spares my life, if he gives me a good job, if he gives me good circumstances. When what we ought to be praying is, though God may not do any of that for me, I still will rest in his hands. I will still trust in his love and his power. See, God has already proven his power and his grace through the greatest miracle of all for you when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for your sins, to set you free, to prepare a place for you in eternity. See, in the Bible, we read of Jesus doing lots of miracles, but understand the miracles that he does in the Bible is meant to call attention to his greater power, his greater miracle, which is to set us free from our sins. And so our prayer needs to be the prayer of our Lord Jesus who said, Father, not my will, but what? Your will be done. Ask God to change your circumstances. Exercise faith. Ask Him. There's nothing wrong with that. You should. We're told to ask. But don't base your security on your circumstances around you. Base your security on His love for you, and God will use those negative circumstances actually as a means for you to experience His strength and His power and His presence, which you wouldn't do if He changed your circumstances. God loves you. God wants to be connected to you. Let me ask you a question right now in your life. Are you standing in the hands of God's love? Are you standing in the hand of God's strength? Are you tapped into that? Is he your security? I have a a, a special relationship with all of my children and my grandchildren and my grandson Harrison. And uh, he and I have this little trick that we've been doing for a couple of months now. He's about seven months old. And um, I started, is that right, Marsha? How old? He's eight months old. Yeah, give or take a month, all right? I can't even keep my own birthday straight. Um, and, and, but when he was about five months of age, I used to do this with him, and I still do it. And um, 
uh, I do this with him, and, and understand, I did this when he couldn't stand yet by himself. Even now when he stands, he's Mr. Wobble Knees, right? He kind of has to have something to hang on to. He can kind of push things along, but he can't stand on his own. He can't walk yet. But he loves his grandpa so much. You're laughing? You ain't seen nothing yet. And his grandpa loves him so much. And there's so much trust between the two of us. And he so trusts my strength. He's so confident in my hands. Well, just watch this. This is my grandson, Harrison, and he's going to help me in our children's center demonstrate for you what it really means to put your faith and trust in God's supernatural power and presence in your life. Now, this is something that he and I have been doing even before he could stand up. And even now when he stands, he has to hang on to something. But watch what he can do because he's learned to trust his grandpa's love and power. Here's what happened. Ready? (laughs) There he is. There he is. Look how he's looking at me. That's what we have to do is keep our eyes on Christ. He's trusting grandpa, huh? And he's resting in my strength and power. Yeah? <laughs> okay, now, he and I are trained professionals, so don't try that at home. Even his dad can't do that with him. Because it is secret grandpa power. I did, those, I did that with his dad. I've done it with my daughter, and I do it with him. And it, it's just, it, to me, it's such a powerful spiritual lesson because every time I do that with him, I just feel like the Holy Spirit's saying, why won't you do that with God? Because I know there's coming a day. It happened with my son. It happened with my daughter. I know it's going to happen with Harrison when he finally gets savvy to the fact that there's nothing around him. He's going to get his eyes on that empty space and he's going to go, uh-uh. And I have to wait for my next grandchild. <laughs> we do the same thing with God, don't we? God says, just trust me. Just stand in my hands. Just trust my strength. Trust how much I love you. Just, just tap into me and forget about the stuff that's going on around you. Life is not about your circumstances. Life is about you and me and what I've got prepared for you. Don't question my character. You're puny. Trust me. That's when, that's when you experience his power. That's when you experience his presence. An 18th century spiritual mystic put it this way. He said, a living faith, I like that, a living faith is nothing else than a steadfast pursuit of God through all that disguises, demolishes, and seeks, so to speak, to abolish him. That's our doubt. That's our circumstances. A living faith pursues God in spite of what is going on around me, around us. You see, it's all about trusting God, not our circumstances. Faith is all about trusting God, not our circumstances. It is about exercising the muscle of our faith. It's about tapping into his presence and his power and his love. Right now in your life, some of you are in a battle right now you are wrestling with doubts and fear because you want god to change your circumstances you're begging him to it's not happening and you think he doesn't love you but he does 
But understand, it's not about your circumstances. It's not really even about you. It's about God. And the attitude we need to have is somebody is called a two-handed faith. On the one hand, we need to say, God, I believe that you are working in my life. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I may not get it till I get to eternity. But I believe you're working in my life. This is an opportunity for me to experience you in a rare and powerful way. I'm going to trust you. The other hand says, God, I'm in no position. I'm in no place to question your character. Because you're sovereign. And I am pretty puny. But you're willing to hold me in your hands. That's a good place to be. Will you stand in his hands? Stop wearing yourself out. Because he'll let you if that's what you choose to do. Stop wearing yourself out with worry and anxiety. It keeps you from experiencing his presence and power. Say, Pastor, if I take that stand, what do I do with all that energy? I mean, how do I, how do I deal with that negative energy that's coming at me that... That creates the doubt and the discouragement and the fear in my life. Next weekend, if you show up, I'm going to tell you what to do with it. Next weekend, I want to give you something not just to sit there and hear intellectually. I want to give you something you can actually do. That in the midst of your struggling, in the midst of your suffering, when God is saying, I'm not going to change your circumstances, will give you, will give you the capacity to not only tap into that power, but experience it in your life. Because here's the problem. Most of us, when we get sidelined by a storm in our life, we get isolated. We shut down. We become narcissistic. It's all about me and my little problem. We get in our pity potty. And then what happens is we cannot experience God's power because God's power is not static. His power doesn't just stay in us. For God's power to work, it has to flow through us. And next weekend, I'm going to talk to us, myself, about how then do I uncork my life, so to speak, so the power can get out of me. Because it's when the power is released from me that I experience its presence in me. So you've got to be here next weekend. But it starts... It starts by standing confidently in his love and trusting in his power. This morning as we stand, I want you to imagine with me that you're not standing on a concrete floor, but you're standing in the hand of God. Would you stand with me? And just so your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, Let me pray for you. Father, as these dear folks stand here this morning, help them each to imagine standing in the hands of God. Father, some of us confess to you that our theology is really messed up. We only want to stand in your hands if you'll do as we ask. Genie in the lamp. Jesus in the lamp. Forgive us for that wrong thinking. God, what matters is that you love us and we love you. And if you want to use our circumstances to help us know your love deeper, to build more dependence in you, to get us more focused on eternity and less focused on this world, then please do so, oh God. But Father, I would pray for those who are in bad circumstances this morning, physically and in other ways, Lord. If it's your will, would you bring the healing? Would you hear their prayer, their faith, whether it's as great or as small? Hear their childlike faith. Father, we don't pray if, we pray though. 
We pray, oh God, even though you don't deliver, even though it's not your timing, we will rest in you. And Lord, just, just from their bottom of their feet to the top of their head, just right now, Lord, just fill them with a sense of your presence, your power, the security of your love. Place their fear and doubts. The knowledge and the fact that you love them this day. Encourage them, I pray, and keep them. If you could use some extra prayer this morning, go ask my prayer partners to come to the front right now. When the service is over, just come up. Maybe you just need somebody to pray for you to help strengthen your faith. That's okay. It's good. Remember the man who prayed to Jesus? He said, I believe, help my unbelief. Let somebody pray with you. Prayer partners, staff, spouses, come on up here. Be ready to pray with people this morning. I want you to know that God loves you today. May God's strength and grace keep you. In Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said.